is the Bloody Disgusting Podcast Network. Tell me the fairy tale again. It's too scary, you know, start seeing things that aren't there. Boils and ghouls, lock your doors and strap yourselves in. From Los Angeles, California, Bloody Disgusting presents the Boo Crew Podcast. Horror news, commentary, reviews, interviews, and more. With your hosts, Lauren and Trevor Shand and Leone D'Antonio. Hey, I'm Leo. I'm Lauren. And I'm Trevor, and we're the Boo Crew. Welcome to episode 98. You're hanging out with writer, director, and actor Oz Perkins. Follow that smell of fresh baked goods into the woods where he'll let you in on his newest, most sinister creation yet, Gretel and Hansel, in theaters everywhere this Friday. We open the book on his previous films like the highly acclaimed I Am the Pretty Thing That Lives in the House and The Black Coat's Daughter. Including coming up with that incredible monologue for Pretty Things that's just pure and beautiful poetry, forcing you to embrace the worlds of dark hallways, twists and turns, and the occult. Oh, and Friday the 13th, 13. We'll explore his new film and how it came to be, go into the design of the witch's house and the look of the witch herself, conjuring up creepy performances and a real-life exorcism or two thrown into the mix. I wouldn't go into the forest if I were you. Hey, this is Oz Perkins. You are being lured into a creepy cottage in the woods, inhabited by the Boo Crew. Look! It smells of cake! Careful with that, dear. I'd hate for you to start something you can't stop. Go ahead, scream. That's all we need. Another victim crawls onto the gurney for a Boo Crew autopsy. Joining the Boo Crew in the Speakeasy studio is a brilliant actor, writer, and director who infuses a dark poetry into his films that is nothing short of breathtaking. As a writer, he had his start in 2010's Removal, followed by the award-nominated Cold Comes the Night and The Girl in the Photographs. His haunting directorial feature-length debut came with a pair of the most talked-about horror films of the decade. The unforgettable The Black Coat's Daughter, starring Emma Roberts and Kiernan Shipka, and 2016's I Am the Pretty Thing That Lives in the House. He makes hand-spun fairy tales and enter the world like a folded piece of paper torn from a grimoire, passed from viewer to viewer. The contents haunting our conscience like a dark secret. He offers a real experience that moviegoers simply aren't used to having. He is back to further explore the boundless alchemy of his storytelling with the new film he directed, Gretel and Hansel, starring Sophia Lillis, Alice Kriege, and Sammy Leakey. It's in theaters everywhere January 31st. We are honored to welcome Oz Perkins. Yes! Uh, my absolute pleasure to be here. I hope I've done any of the things that you list. Oh, man. <laughs> yes, you have. Yes, sir. Definitely. Okay. Well, thank you again so much for taking the time to be here today. And yeah. congratulations on the release of this film. Yeah. Thanks very much. Yeah. Crazy time. You have a very unique approach to filmmaking. We wanted to take a look at the things that inform that approach with the first impactful experiences that you remember being exposed to the horror genre. Well, I mean, I suppose one of the things that happened early on was when I was invited to stand in as young Norman in uh, Psycho 2 when that was shot in, I guess, 82. And I was eight years old, I guess. I'm, yeah, eight. And, um, you know, at the time it seemed sort of like, yeah, that, that makes sense that I'll do that. And I went to the set and went to the back lot at Universal and was surprised by how afraid I was. Uh, the whole time, not afraid of messing up or afraid of doing something wrong, but, you know, tangibly afraid of standing in the places and being in the Bates house, even though clearly a set surrounded by 
however many people doing their things and grips and everything. I was taken by how it felt so immersively uh, authentic and uh, terribly creepy to me. So I think that was, that was, I was surprised by that. I wasn't anticipating. I don't know what I was thinking it was going to be like, but I didn't think it was going to be as convincingly immersive as it was. And I, I think probably uh, from then on, I kind of felt the gravity of what my dad did and what people do uh, differently. Wow. wow. Did, had you seen the original Psycho or anything seen at anything. that point? No, Nothing. I hadn't seen anything. We, we, I, I feel like. It was just a sort of a, I mean, obviously it was a different time back then, like in 82, if the sequel was coming out and we did a world tour for the movie with my dad and we would go to all the theaters and, and if you remember, they start Psycho 2 with the shower scene clip. Yes. And um, before the movie starts, they show the clip from the original and we would go to the screenings and we would stand in the wings and my dad would get up and kind of introduce the movie. And it was always this feeling of let's make sure we're gone before they show the shower scene bit. Let's make sure we're gone. Mom, we're going to be gone right before the lights go down and they show the thing. And so there was a, I think there was a certain kind of, uh, reverence, I suppose, but we, we kind of stayed clear of it. I didn't see any of psycho until I was in my, in my teens and, and, now, of course, everything's different. Everybody sees everything all the time. But that was still a time when things were sort of still behind. There was a membrane that protected us from the things that were scary. Interesting. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> what are the films that now you find yourself rewatching, the ones that you feel have become pillars of the horror genre as far as you're concerned? I tend to rewatch things like uh, Don't Look Now. I think everybody probably does. It's funny how when an artist dies, and so when when he died this last year, um, when Nicholas Rogue died this last year, it's this funny thing where kind of everybody sort of said like, oh man, now everybody knows that we've been stealing from, that everybody worth anything has been stealing from him just like wall to wall (laughs) because he's not someone that anybody was thinking about. I, like openly, like I don't think agents were thinking about Nicholas Rogue. I don't think development people were thinking about Nicholas Rogue, but I know for a fact that all of us in this, in my seat, um, we're thinking about him a lot. And it was the kind of thing where it was like, someone like that dies and all of a sudden it's like, everyone's like, well, we got to remake this. We got to turn the uh, man who fell to earth into a TV show. We got to do the thing with all this. And it's kind of, it's almost like the jig is up a little bit. Like, oh man, we, we, uh, we were stealing from him and now everyone's going to be stealing from him or something. Like that. <laughs> so I think that, yeah. So I think that, yeah. you know, don't look now, uh, stays with me. Uh, let the right one in. Um, oh, I love that movie. Uh, Eyes without a face. Yeah. Um, Boy, I don't know. I could say probably a hundred thousand more movies, but let's say those. The Strangers, you know, yeah, The Strangers struck great. me. The Strangers was so disarming to me because of how careful and sad it was. And I think that in my kind of coming into my own as a writer, when I wrote The Black Coat's Daughter, what was really kind of coursing through my system was the feeling of grief and loss, and and sort of the idea of a life disrupted. And I feel like. I felt that The Strangers was such a beautiful movie about a life, lives disrupted. You know, these poor people just trying to kind of have their last kind of night together and just wanting to sort of be alone in their kind of sad, sweet, bittersweet, like, oh, the relationship's never going to be what we want it to be. And life, and then, and then it's just like that yeah. to me is w- more than horrifying. It was almost just like too bad, you know, <laughs> kind of sad. Yeah. So anyway, those are, those are movies that I care about. From the first 10 minutes of, Pretty Things and Lily's stunning monologue that she does. It's quite evident that you have an impeccable way with words. That care you put into them helps make your films very powerful and immersive. How did your passion for writing begin? 
you sort of a very elemental mo- sort of moment uh, turning point for me in my life was I had uh, I had gone to work. My dad had died, and I had been sort of taken un- not under the wing of, but but Mike Nichols had showed up in my life, and he was one of my dad's closest friends. And when my dad passed, Mike was very much sort of there and his idea for me was maybe how about if you didn't go back to film school because i was at nyu at the time how about if you don't go back to film school instead you come and work for me on a picture that was called wolf i'm sure everybody remembers the, the nicholson uh the werewolf movie yeah right? yeah, yeah. Right. so i went to go work for mike um as an assistant of course mike has plenty of assistants he didn't need me to be an assistant and that was sort of the gag the gag was that he hired me to just hang out with him and so I got to spend the duration of the production of Wolf um, at the, uh, you know, at the right hand of the master of one of the all, you know, probably greatest American filmmakers that's ever has ever been and one of the greatest people that has ever been. And so I kind of got through with that experience and went, found myself back at USC and I was at film school and I was sitting in class and, and I just, I felt like. I didn't want to be sitting in the dark in my, in like at, at that time, I felt like that was not a good use of my, like I just worked for Mike and I didn't feel like going and sitting and listening to the questions of other people about, you know, well, what is a, what's a, what's a key grip? What's a, I it didn't <laughs> right. seem like I was going to make it. So I, um, I switched courses and I, and I got an English degree. I went back to NYU and I just read every book I could possibly read and learned how to write a proper sentence. And I think at the time really fell in love with writing um, not screenwriting. Screenwriting is a whole other kind of animal, right? Screenwriting is like its own thing. It's it's a it's a it's a it's a, str- it's a strange one. But I really fell in love with writing and reading and words and Nabokov and uh, you know um, John Steinbeck and people like that, where sort of the the lusciousness of language became really important to me. And, and I was actually kind of surprised, and I think remain surprised at how sort of screenplays tend to be. You know, you can go down the road of, of writing a screenplay and just treating it as a blueprint of like, okay, these are the days that we need. These are the locations that we need. She says this, so we better get her to learn this. But for me, the more color I'm able to write into the script, both in dialogue and especially in the sort of the action lines and the stage directions, the more color I'm able to include, the faster you get everybody on your wavelength. And because the job of the director, obviously is to marshal the best versions of all of your department heads. The best way for me, I've found, to sort of jumpstart that, to really shoot that in the arm, is to write the scripts with a lot of stuff that you can't shoot. Sure. You know, frankly. And I think that that, that kind of concept has... Not it's not it's not forbidden or it's not it's not like people expect hope that you don't. But I feel like for the most part, scripts are a kind of it's this, it's this, is this, and it's this. And I tend to write in, and it feels like this, you know. And I think that that uh, the people designing the movie with me really appreciate it. They really they they get to a deeper understanding, which just allows them to be better at their creative jobs. Do you remember? where you were and what you were reflecting on when you wrote, for example, Lily's initial monologue? I wanted it to feel, for lack of a better word, I wanted it to feel literate, which is like the dirtiest word (laughs) in this business. It's like the thing that everybody doesn't want to hear you say. Um, So I I wanted it to feel 
like a story was being told to us or like we had picked up a a, a novel, a, a mystery novel or a horror novel or a ghost novel that no one had ever known existed before. And we were reading through it and we were sort of in the immersive experience of reading a book, which was what the movie kind of wanted to be, you know, it kind of wanted to be um, a movie with a book with a book with a movie and a book inside of a book inside of a story inside of a book so uh language just felt like um it just felt like the best device to sort of get us to get us there as fast as we could by making the characters feel like they were novelized characters right no that makes sense i also love the way that you forced the viewer to explore the negative space by holding us on a dark hallway that we and we can't look away from it you just you keep going towards yeah. it or when lily's walking around the kitchen in the pitch dark while investigating the strange noise any one of us would be booking it back up the stairs but you force <laughs> us to you know you stand there the lights are all off yeah. how important is it to include the audience in that immersion of the film to give us that opportunity to fill in the blanks so to speak it's funny because i'm i'm still really new at what i do and i think that one of the things that's that i actually lose track of sometimes and never want to lose track of is that an audience is experiencing this and it's 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 one thing to sort of to sort of compose a shot for instance and and think oh i really like that's really that's beautiful or that's that suits my taste you know like so much of my job is just to sort of have good taste you know, mm. just have the right taste for the thing so that when someone says do you want it to be the red raincoat or the black raincoat i'm able to say well obviously the red raincoat otherwise we'd be there forever <laughs> but i think that i think that sort of remembering uh, foregrounding that the audience we're doing it for them you know and i think that even when you make a picture as personal and as sort of opaque i guess and as mannered as something like I am the pretty thing lives in the house at the end of the day, it only matters if somebody get. it only matters if somebody engages like the, as, as an inert piece of something, it has no value. The value is in, is in the response uh, of the, of the audience. And so the, the intention with sort of long shots like that, that we, that we used and kind of looking at nothing um, or looking at darkness was meant to really include the viewer as much as you, as, as we could. To sort of invite the viewer to watch with us and to sort of be with us. What about some of those shots and you know in that film where the camera seems to be on the ground and you're you're looking at a folded corner of the carpet, for instance, or it's on the table and you're looking at the back end of a wood old wooden chair. It does create a really unsettling effect. What is the power in those decisions? As a storyteller, uh, the thing with the chair, you know, the, the kind of the quality of the empty chair has yeah. always been something that I think is power powerful. I think it's trying to use sort of classical occult feeling like the, an empty chair to me is a very classical occult vibe, like the empty chair where you're presumably waiting for it to be filled by something that you don't know. You're inviting something you're inviting you're inviting the spirits or you're inviting the ghosts or you're inviting whatever it is. And there's a certain, uh, apprehension about what that's going to be like, you know, uh, um, is this going to be a benevolent spirit? Is this going to be a groovy ghost? Is this going to be <laughs> like a bad thing? So I think the, the wanting to sort of build in the anticipation of what's, what's out there that's coming to us, like what's going to be literally sitting down with us and, sort of sharing its story. So the empty chairs, there's empty chairs all over um, 
I'm the pretty thing that lives in the house for that, for that purpose, sort of the quality of, of just acknowledging that space and the space of the space that people make, the human beings make to invite the other world in, right. you know, we spend so much time kind of thinking, oh, there's no other world or there's no way to access the other side, but mediums and so forth know that, that that's, it really is quite, it's really possible to do and that the empty chair is usually the place where they go. So things like that were, were just, um, it's all textural, man. You know, it's like, I don't, uh, a movie like that doesn't really care about what's happening. A movie like that cares about what it's like to be there. Have you had an experience where it's made you believe that there are paranormal things out there? Absolutely. All the time. I mean, the, the most sort of striking of of this these experiences for me was you know I'll get right I'll get right into it like the house that I grew up in um, off of Mulholland and Woodrow Wilson where I lived for years and years and years and years I went back there when it was empty we had emptied it out and we were going to sell it and uh, there was nothing there was not a not a not a, a stitch of furniture there was nothing and completely empty and I had known it in my life as a child and growing up and. I was there with a friend of mine and uh, we took mushrooms, right? We figured that was the, the, the oh, thing yeah. to do. It was kind of like, all right, so long place <laughs> like this. We're going to, and the thing about it was that I saw everything and oh. I saw that nothing was gone, that everything was suspended in, it was just as real as it had ever been. And I could kind of almost, um, I could almost swipe through time periods where you could say, Oh, it, it was like The Shining, really, where it's like, oh, there's a party in that wing of the hotel. Right. For me, it was like, oh, there's a party in that room over there. But in this room, I'm seven years old. And in this room, it's like that. So it's like the quality of, you know, whether it's paranormal or occult or whatever you want to call it, like the quality of nothing really goes anywhere. It just hides from us. Right. And it doesn't even, it, we collude in that hiding. We, we, we kind of resist connection to all of that and it makes sense that we do i suppose but when the window opens and we're able to look out and say oh yeah nothing dies nothing goes anywhere where it's all here is sort of it's for me it's at the root of all kind of ghost things and occult vibes and supernatural feeling is that quality of no 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 it's all here we make the decision to not engage with it and then when we decide to engage with it or it makes the decision to engage with us sort of all, all bets are off. You do have that occult theme going through Black Coat's Daughter and yeah. obviously Gretel and Hansel as well. Has that been an interest for you as far as reading up on that kind of thing or get, delving into that world? Yeah, absolutely. And I think it, it, it just, for me, comes from kind of just what I said. I think when you, when one experiences loss in life and you kind of, you're, you're, you're kind of, people who experience grief or God forbid the loss of a child or something. And you kind of get into this place of it's just impossible that that's gone. It's, it just doesn't make any sense that there, a person would be, and then a person would not be. Um, and you know, whereas obviously the physicality of the person is, has, has moved on, but it's, I suppose part of my kind of devotion to the occult at this point is just, it's almost a good, warm feeling. You know, it's almost like you're being cared for by the universe if right. you engage in the occult. And I think that, that there, you know, it's, it's, it's easy to turn that into scary. 
And it is because it's unknown and because it's sort of not under our control and it's kind of maybe waiting for us. But um, in another way, it's not scary. In another way, it's it's sort of sweetly uh, mournful. You know, it's like, and that's that's obviously something that has gone hand in hand or glove a hand in glove with horror telling all the time. I mean, Edgar Allan Poe, right? It's just mournfulness, right? Like it's, it's horror, but it's mournful horror. So I think that that's, um, I think that's rich. And I think that the fact that I've, that I've sustained the losses that I've sustained and then been sort of shown by the universe. No, no, no. Yes. Very difficult, very heartbreaking, but also still here. I always tell my friends here, especially at the end of 2019, we're talking about, you know, our favorite horror movies of the year. And, Black Hole's Daughter came up, not because it's from that year, but because it's in my top five favorite horror movies of all time. Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> it's such unique storytelling. Thank you. I mean, when I watched this movie, I was like, whoa, I, I gotta go back and watch it again, because, you know, there's a twist at a certain point where if you don't, if you miss a certain scene where, you know, one character is looking at herself in the mirror and you miss what is being shown, then you tie two and two together and you're like, Oh man, there's a lot more going on here, you know. But I I love that movie so much. Thank it's you. so well written. Thank you. It's got murder. It's got blood. It's got uh, <laughs> demonic possession. It's got hail Satan. It's got hail Satan. <laughs> Not very many got, movies have that anymore. It's got the, it's got the world's world's fastest exorcism. Yep, that's right. That's all we had time for <laughs> on a 23 day shoot. Believe me. And one of the most thought provoking endings. Yeah, I mean the 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 movie. Uh, I've said it a lot of times, probably to people, but the, for me, that movie was all. Ab- it's all about the last image. It's it's all about what it's like to uh, lose, kind of completely. You know, the sort of undone. And by the time Joan at the end gets to where she's at, she's made a really bad mess out of everything in right. the pursuit of not being alone. And at the end of the day is just alone and the sort of the sort of non-negotiable quality of grief and the non-negotiable quality of of loneliness or loss or 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 is is what that movie just kind of wants you to be with like it wants you to be with her at the end and the the everything that comes before that is just it's in service of that portrait so we we that last shot of her what, you know, I had a lot of, there were a lot of things in the movie before we went to go make it that I was sure I knew exactly what they were. And that last shot of her, I knew exactly what that was. And we got it exactly as it was. And, and Emma was gracious. We shot it twice, I made her shoot it twice over two days. Like we did a whole thing, like just to make sure that it was exactly as it was, because that's what the movie was to me. The movie was, was just a, was a portrait of loss that happened to work as a demonic possession movie. <laughs> where did the idea come from to, you know to write this um it was I, I had written sort of i'd kind of co-written a few things with people and i was just refinding uh my footing after after kind of living a life of not doing a lot and kind of just sort of wandering around and sort of navel gazing and and when it came time to write the movie i it was just as simple as what do i want to see what do i want to watch what 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 resonates uh, for me? And like I said, at the, at, at, at the time that I started to write it, I watched both Let the Right One In and uh, The Strangers, kind of almost back to back. Wow, that's great. Yeah, and, and just really connected to how sad they were and how, how much about loss they were. And then, you know, got to be friends with Brian Bertino and sort of learn more about his own personal life story, his childhood, and 
you know, the fact that I found a real kind of kindred spirit in Brian is this feeling of, you know, just kind of grief. And so the, the idea was to make a movie about grief, but not make a movie about grief because who the heck wants to see a movie? <laughs> like, it's just not, you know what I mean? Like, it's just not, it, so the Trojan horse element became, it's like, how do we make a movie about grief? How do I make a movie about the last shot of the movie without being a terrible not even a board's a drag right. and so like you know found found the way to do that and and then like it's strange to say but when you're writing on a from a blank page you'd better make a decision fast right you'd better make one decision really fast and i've always thought of it like a crossword puzzle right it's like if you lay in five down you're going to know at least something about seven across. Right, you know what I mean? Because right. five down is immovable. Your seven across has to work with five down. And then it all kind of starts to to do that. You never change five across or five down, whatever it was. And so for me, as silly as it sounds, I, I was like, well, I'm going to find a place for this. And I'm going to, it's going to be a girl's boarding school in winter on a weekend when there's nobody else there. And that became five across. And from there, everything got built out with one one eye on the kind of like, it's a movie about grief and it's a movie about loss. Girls boarding school, Dead of Winter is my five across. So then you start to build in what matches with that and eventually get yourself there. The kind of the twist of the narrative of, of, of you know, who these kind of people are to each other uh, came late. You know, like uh, I wrote a lot thinking, <laughs> I wrote the movie a lot. I wrote a lot of the movie not knowing that I was in two time periods. I'm sure I'm not ruining it for anybody in the middle of this has seen it, but it's like, I didn't know that going in. It just became one of my 13 <laughs> down goes with seven yeah. across. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of grief and loss, there's one specific thing that this character is grieving at the very, very end that I've never seen before in a movie. Yeah. And I thought, wow, that's, that's very unique, man. And I, of course we can't talk about it because that spoils the, you know, the best part of the movie. But yeah, I, it's just like, Okay, so you know it's one thing that you know you, you're grieving a loved one, you know somebody close to you, but then it's like she's grieving something else as well, and I'm like, this is dark. <laughs> Holy shit, this is dark. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, we 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 kind of attach ourselves to what we can attach ourselves to, right? And, and it, people, some people get lucky, and it's a wonderful grandparent, and some people get unlucky, and it's methamphetamine. You know what I mean? Like sure. We, yeah. We 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 find that thing that 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 sort of fits the look like the puzzle of ourselves and you know we're all missing our pieces and so like uh, if, if you get lucky it's not the devil right. <laughs> <laughs> now was that the was it the final scene that was shot on like one of the coldest days ever on record yeah the, the actually that shot of 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 emma roberts screaming at the end uh it was all 40 to, it was all, every day was 40 degrees below zero oh, in ottawa oh. which was the coldest winter they'd had in 40 Ottawa winters. I grew up in Ottawa. I know those you winters know very well. This. Yeah, yeah. But we had the almanac, and the almanac was like, "Yep, you did it. This is the coldest it's been in forty years." Wow. The AD, the AD, who's kind of like really fabulous, kind of older, kind of grizzled Canadian guy. Um, <laughs> he can, he can, after we did, we shot and we did a night shoot that where 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 uh, Remar gets his throat slashed and like that whole thing in the car. Yeah. And there was no heat in the car, and we couldn't pull the focus on the shots and like all this Jeez. horrible nightmare minus 40 minus 40 how many times can we cut remar's throat once how many times can we splash blood on uh, on emma's face once you know like that whole thing and the next day he came to me the ad came to me he's like just so you know i've been making movies for 30 years and that was the coldest i've ever worked <gasps> man 
I was oh. like, man, geez, don't do, thank you for telling me that now. Yeah, exactly. Then, right? Because it would have gotten so much worse. I, I'm surprised the equipment didn't freeze over. Uh, anyway. We had to. That was one of the things. Like you know, where you, where there's a reason why you don't shoot in Ottawa in the winter because you can't get the fucking lenses from the car from the truck to the camera. It takes a whole process. You have to take them in a bag. Then they have to be covered. Then they have to be uncovered slightly. Then they have to be warmed because if you don't, the lenses cloud oh. up, and then you're it's it's a whole thing. That's right. The flowers that are in the back seat of the car um, when she gets into the back of their car and they've got the flowers for the, for their daughter's grave the guy the prop guy came out and he had this bouquet of flowers and they were wrapped in about five in like a five foot radius worth of um, tissue and paper towels and plastic and I said well what's going on he said as soon as I take this stuff off the flowers are gonna die oh like my in, in, a, in the instant that I take this off the flowers will die and that was kind of like the, that was like the mantra of the whole movie. It was like, as soon as we step outside, we're all going to die. <laughs> and, 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 and it's like Emma, instant hypothermia. Yeah, Emma, Emma Roberts came to me and the loveliest person, so funny and so nuts. And she would come to me and, she, and every day and she'd say, skin freezes and burns in five minutes tonight. Just so you know. Oh. So her skin exposure will burn in five minutes. And I'm thinking <gasps> she's like owned by Revlon and stuff like this is, like, yeah, exactly. this is like a major problem if I burn <laughs> any of her skin. Oh, uh, but we, uh, when we had one chance to get blood on her face, we got it in one chance. Why, wow. So why did you, why shoot in why, Ottawa? Why, why shoot in Ottawa? Why shoot in Ottawa? <laughs> <laughs> uh, why couldn't it be a summer? Right. I still don't even really know the answer to that. And I, and even more crazy, why shoot twice yeah. in Ottawa? Because we shot I'm the Pretty Thing Loose in the House right. in Ottawa. That too. was also Ottawa. Ottawa. The caveat Jeez. with that was as long as we never go outside. Yeah. And it was like wonderful because the whole movie takes place in the house. The whole rule of the movie is that it never goes outside. So right. let's, and they're like, well, do we find the house? I said, no fucking way. We build it. So we built the house on, in a, in a warehouse, like a, like trucks passing by in off the highway in Ottawa. There's no sound stages. So we built the house on, on, uh, in a warehouse of upstairs and the downstairs. And, uh, we never left. Wow. That was the only way we could do it. It was like, I'll go back to Ottawa. Absolutely. Because the people were so lovely and the line producer was such a sweet guy and all the people were so wonderful and the talented and exceptional and loving and generous and, but awful. <laughs> awful. So I'm assuming Gretel and Hansel was filmed in Ottawa. <laughs> uh, yeah, it was filmed in Ireland, you know, like, which is really uh, quite beautiful. Oh yeah. No, let's, let's get into Gretel and Hansel. Yeah. So how did the project reveal itself to you? It's just one of those things where it's you expect that you're going to be doing A, B, or C, and then all of a sudden L shows up. Yeah. It's like, wow. here's your movie. And um, Brian Cavanaugh-Jones, the producer, uh, he and I had wanted to do thing, something together for a while, and he had this script that a young guy had written, this young guy from English had, England had written, and and Orion was very sort of um, bullish to get it done, and because, you know, Orion sort of wants to, is coming into themselves again and wants movies, and... And so there it was, uh, kind of like, all you got to do is say yes, and we're going. And, you know, when you spend as much time as someone like me spends trying to kind of like desperately like spec things out and like drudge things out of your guts to bleed out of your eyeballs to write scripts. <laughs> and then someone's like, well, here's this. You know, the title page said Gretel and Hansel. It had the names reversed like that. And so I, it was a good sign. I thought it was such an elegant move like so sort of simple it's like oh yeah it's one of those things when you see it happen you're like why didn't i do that why it's so obvious um so it came as a as a as a draft and and you know then we redid the whole thing 
where they switched because the story focuses on Gretel's perspective? It does now. It was they were switched uh, initially. There was a feeling of that, but part of what I not part of what I really wanted to foreground and what I brought to MGM and to Orion as sort of my my take on the whole thing was that it had to be it had to be her story. It had to be her coming of age or her becoming of age. Um, and so in the original script, they were both, I think 12 or something, and they might've been twins. And for me, it was, let's pull Gretel out of that and put her into the cusp of, onto the cusp of becoming a person, which mm, right. you're just not doing when you're 12, but she's 16. And so there was sort of a feeling of like burgeoning womanhood and personhood. And so that became important. And, and then sort of from there, we figured what the, what the kind of the trajectory of the character would be. Um, yes. All based on the simple rearrangement of, of names, which is uh, striking. The movies you've done do lean towards that female perspective. What about that perspective is compelling to you? It's funny because I, I, I don't think I ever did it on purpose, but I think in hindsight thinking about it, you know, the, the, horror, the horror genre or horror movies, horror novels, horror poems, whatever it is, is so much about what we don't know, what we can't ever know, what we can't understand. Obviously, the, the, the big one in the room is death, right? We don't, we, it's what we all in, uh, share. Every single person shares that. We all share the, that death is coming in one form or another. And so for me, I've, I've started to sort of think of the horror genre as being this, this way for us to kind of collectively process the fact that we all die. Um, we don't know when or how uh, is it going to be at the hands of a of a hockey masked guy at a at a camp? Is it going to be home invaders? Yeah. Is it going to be is something going to come up through you? Is it going to be a some horrible disease? You know, so uh, that being sort of the elemental question of the well, I don't know this. I can't see this. This is hidden from me. This is behind something. And like we talked about earlier, it's kind of like this is part of the other side it's not it, so there's that that mystery but it's not the right word there's a, there's a hiding to it and so i think that for me the use of female protagonists keeps me in the place of i don't know I, uh i think i know like i think i can guess what a woman in this situation or in the case of something like the black coat's daughter or gretel i think i might know what a 14 year old girl feels I definitely don't because I could never really, right. but I feel like it might be this. And I wonder if it's kind of this. So it's sort of uh, having, having a female protagonist at the center of everything sort of keeps me in the place of, gosh, I don't know. And I'm a little worried about not knowing. And I'm a little, it's, it's sort of slightly dreadful and kind of scary and sort of, you know what I'm saying? Like the, the, the mystifying quality of what's important to the genre stays with me all the time i never get to sign off on being like hey it's a dude he he, he <laughs> thinks like this or he wants that it's far more interesting for me to have a, a woman in the protagonist role where i have to sort of feel like i wonder what she's thinking now there's yeah. magic to that for yeah. sure yeah the well, opening scene is breathtaking like it's cinematically gorgeous Talking about Gretel and Hansel now? Yes, yeah. we are. Lovely. Um, yes. What are the elements that are unique to you that you use to help create these impactful scenes? In fairness with, with this, you know, uh, when you have a director of photography who's, I always use the word taste. I don't know what other words use. Aesthetic uh, it, it doesn't feel like the right word. Taste feels like the right word to me because 
taste is is more kind of almost uh, it's almost more intellectual than aesthetic in some way it's also sort of spiritual like to have good taste is sort of a is sort of um it's one of these it's an intangible right you can't can't measure it and, and you can't go and learn it somewhere god knows and so when you when you're able to connect with someone who who has taste that's either the same as yours or is in its way oddly sort of uh, compelling i think that you you end up in conversation finding the right things for for gallo olivares who shot the movie with me we we sort of were faced with this notion of there's a sort of a prologue and then there's the movie and in most cases you would you the prologue would be a uh, kind of like a square like kind of a thing like that's the most canned version so if the most canned version is a square vibe of like a rickety old projector showing yeah. us some old story and then the movie becomes a widescreen thing if that's the most kind of like yeah version if that's almost like the most instagram version right. then what are we going to do to not be that way and so it became important to us that not only was the film the the body of the movie gretel's story is shot in a one five five to one aspect ratio so it's a you know it's much more square than than things and and that's a whole other story. The fact that MGM and Orion signed off on us doing that, I still, I still, I'll believe it when I see it. You know what I mean? Like, I'll believe it when I'm sitting at the Grove and it comes up and it's in a square. I'll believe it. People are going to be like, well, that's, that's not high def. <laughs> yeah, my phone is broken. Right. Um, but, but so we decided that, that to go along with that, we were going to, instead of doing the square for the prologue, we were going to go into sort of a Western vibe and we were going to feel like everything was sort of cinemascope uh western kind of like a bigger story almost more mythological in in a certain way so that became kind of the touchstone for the design you know is like uh honestly aspect ratios and, and what they kind of mean to the viewer and and how how the viewer experiences them so that that became um that became important and the 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 construction of the of the the sort of prologue is meant to be um feel sort of like vignettes you know sort of meant to feel like little little snapshots from uh, a story that's always been kind of little glimpses of a story that's always been and then you get lucky you're in ireland and you can't you can't point the camera in an ugly direction and you have gallo who's uh, you know just perf really perfect actually you wind up with something okay what was kind of the magic in being able to play with a story that's very much embedded into the human consciousness, right? Yeah. It's like, it's like one of these folklore stories that has many lessons and it's been told over and over again for years and years. I felt that it was certainly one of the strong suits of what we had. It's obvious to say that the reason why intellectual property has never been more popular than it is today and that the, the movies that are the most successful these days, uh, financially successful, uh, certainly and critically, I suppose also, are the movies that are finding ways to sort of unexpectedly compile intellectual properties and sort of match them up in a way that we haven't seen them. Joker is, is I think, you know, for all that it is and it isn't at the end of the day, it's just really recognizable stuff. It's like the most recognizable comic book villain ever mixed in with sort of all the stuff about Scorsese that made us feel good about Scorsese movies at us for a certain time. And like that alchemy has, has proven to be like people get it people that that works for everybody so for us when we had the benefit i felt of such a strong piece of ip um i really wanted to lean into that you know a lot of hollywood movies about that are based on fairy tales are sort of become they come at it from an apologist 
point of view. Sorry that we're doing an old story. I, we promise you it'll have orcs in it and dragons and crossbows and all. It'll be sexy and all kinds of stuff. And it's kind of like the beauty of these old stories is that they're so elemental and they're so in all of our intestinal tracts are like undigested bubblegum, right? It's like <laughs> sitting in there. And so it's like, I felt like we were coming in with all this kind of like pre-bought dread and this kind of like pre-bought revulsion that we all feel about this story. And so we wanted just to make sure that we weren't going to lose any of that. And we weren't going to cover it over with, we weren't going to clutter it with a bunch of incident. And we were going to try to apologize for it by throwing it a bunch of kind of other characters or side plots or B structures or any of that. It's a really, you know, simple streamlined thing. Speaking of this, the original Rob Hayes script that you were working off of, are those some of the things that compelled you being a writer yourself, having read the script, obviously, and going into this, are those elements that were in the script that you were compelled by? And there were actually, for the most part, I pulled stuff out. There was like, well, we're in this sort of side moment for seven pages and I don't have seven pages to be, on a side (laughs) trip you like we're going forward towards what the audience knows we're going towards and i think that instead of saying there's two versions right you say gosh the audience already knows what happens in hansel and gretel let's not do that is one version and our version is the audience already knows what happens in hansel and gretel let's take them down that path our way and let's make it feel relevant and let's make it feel in some way contemporary but let's not do that by making up more shit to happen let's make that relevant by taking the sort of the the, what's there and saying how can this feel like something more current and an example being sort of the witch right if she's if she's a cannibal and she's a serial killer i mean like i don't know that anybody says that no one really thinks hansel and gretel serial killer <laughs> right. but hansel and gretel is she's a serial killer that's what she does and so the uh, the idea was to kind of give her some of the trappings of a serial killer and so we built that uh, you know the are the sets are are indicative of that you know the, the kind of white basement room that she has is really to be honest it's just um, me thinking like a girl with a dragon tattoo right it's like what's worse than these people who have these houses and then under their houses they've got these other houses yeah. um, that are their like special place the toy room yeah, as they right. say in sort of trust right like this so studio like, here like, <laughs> like like we are now <laughs> exactly <laughs> I want to talk about the witch and her look And what were your goals to make her look different and act different than other witches we've seen? Um, I, we never looked at any other witches. Like we never, we never tried to compare our witches. We never, we never said, well, they've already done that kind of witch. So let's do this kind of witch. We, we tried to build the witch from her, her pain outward, if that makes sense. Uh So it was like, the idea was. What we can't have here is some cackling witch who's a cardboard evil of like, I don't know, she's a witch. She does witchy things. She eats right. kids. What do you want? That's what she does. The idea was, you know, in the same way that when in 1980 and I'm sitting at the Zigfield and Darth Vader puts his hand out and says, I'm your father. And you say, no, what? he's a hurt person he's a guy who's having a bad time like he this is not going the are you kidding he's darth vader he he wants all of the oh he's actually sad about stuff and he said this is not what he 
digs. You know, this is hard for him. The fact that the li- that life could be hard for Darth Vader. I mean, what an amazing revelation to have. And so for, for and that never left me. Has never ever left me. And so with the witch, we wanted to feel like she's not just doing this because she's doing it. She's doing it because she hurts. Right. She's eating her feelings, right? Like that's, that's, that's where we're at. So let's start with what is her, what is the sort of the nexus of her pain? Like what hurts her that makes her, it's like cycle of abuse, right? It's like what hurts her to make her hurt other people? What's eating her to make her eat other people? And so once we sort of were able to build out a little bit of that, her kind of her look and her demeanor and her her attitude about herself and Gretel and what she does all became clearer. It became it became more like the plight of an addict, right? Who who gets to the point where the last thing they can imagine is eating a kid, but they just can't wait to eat a kid. Right. You know, and it's just that that essential kind of you know that binary feeling is is dramatic you can play it you can write it and you can dress it and you can make it look like something and so and also wanted to foreground things like she's a cannibal you know we gave her cannibal teeth like we studied cannibal teeth like because you know cannibal cultures cannibal tribes they shave their you know this they shave their teeth down to be pointed right so they can more easily eat flesh and bone and stuff so we went and we gave her shaved teeth you know so it was like make no mistake gang uh, she eats people. She was scary. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she's terrific. Yeah. She really is. What about the production design of the house that we got the picture of yeah. uh, in the studio? It's striking. How was, yep. what went into that? We, uh, I, what I, the production designer, Jeremy Reed, um, who's clearly a genius and built the, I'm the pretty thing that lives in the house house. Oh, uh, he did. Wow. Yeah, from, nice. from nothing. I mean, that place doesn't exist. So wow. we, we built that together and based on sort of like my impressions of, of, of a childhood home that I still have in, in, in Cape Cod, Massachusetts in the woods. And it was kind of based on that. And we talked a lot about it and Jeremy and I, the good news about something like this is that you're, you're allowed to have fun and you're allowed to, amuse yourself. And it's sort of what I say to a lot of the department heads right away. If you're not amusing yourself with what you're doing, it's, you're not doing it right. Like if, if you don't, if you don't say, Oh man, I snuck that in. Then wow, I said it to the composer. I said, make sure you make yourself laugh every once in a while. I said, laugh. This is, he's this French guy. I said, laugh. It's the dark. I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. Humor. A little humor is a surest sign of intelligence and it's a surest sign of, of sophistication when in the, in, the, in, in the face of darkness, you got a little bit of humor about yourself. And I got that from my dad for, for certain. But when it came to the design, we, I knew that there were going to be certain places in this movie where the audience, where anybody watching was going to say, I'm ready to judge you, Perkins, on what's the house like? What's the witch like? What happens at the very end? Like, these are things I expect from a movie like a Hansel and Gretel movie. So it's like, do something different. Don't make it a house out of candy. Like the idea of making a gingerbread house for her was, it was like, it just wasn't possible. We could never have done it. And so the idea was, why don't we give her a modern house that in a way, what it does for us is it situates the audience in our world only. It doesn't, there's no con, there's no outside context. And for me, that was important because when I think of, fairy tales 
there's no outside world, right? right. It doesn't matter who the king is, um, what the politics of the of the region are. When <laughs> right. you know what I mean, but like they try to sometimes make it important. <laughs> yeah, like, like yeah. that's part of the story. Like I, I, what? You yeah. know what I mean? But it's like it's just like um, Little Red Riding Hood. Like it doesn't matter what like what country she's in or what year. If if anything, it detracts. So we wanted to make sure that we were hermet- hermetically in our own world. And so signposts to that are things like what the witch's house looks like, where it's like, oh, this is not, is it modern? Is it old? Is it sp- sort of science fiction? Like, yeah. what the fuck am I even looking at? Um, it was in service not of trying to bewilder anybody, but really trying to, in in a way, sort of bring people in and sit them down and say, you're in this world. And don't worry about the rest of anything else. And it was the case also just sort of wanting to create um, a very specific feeling within that world. For instance, when every day I would come to the set and the assistant directors would say, how many extras do you want? How many villagers do you want today? Extras. They'd say zero. They'd say, oh, how about 10? I'd say, how about zero? Because what I don't want is I don't want a, 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 like a town square with people with chickens and <laughs> boiling pots and stuff. It's just right. not, I, no, nobody, no yeah. humans. Did you keep anything from the production? I'm trying to think. You mean that I can then bring here and you guys can hang out? You guys can hang out? You guys can hang out? Did I keep anything? Man, I feel like I must have, but I, now I can't remember what it is. I have stuff from my other movies. I'm going to bring you guys something. Nice. Ooh, oh, that'd be amazing. That's so exciting. Yeah. What about the book? Uh, the book is, I think the book is at the Arclight. So if you can go break, oh, in, you can go break into the Arclight and get that. There we go. I got to say some of the art, <laughs> some of the artistry, the, the craftsmanship on this movie was absolutely bananas. There's, um, you've seen it in the trailer. It's in the movie. Also, there's a, um, a pentagram on a tree and it's yeah. sort of carved into it or something. And I, and I got there on the day and the art person was, was, was down on her knees in front of this tree with a little hand drill wow. and she was doing it and. It's not lines. It's made out of little characters, like little, like little letters. No like, way. Yes. Wow. And she did it with no freehand. What? That's great. I said, where's your stuff? Like your compasses and your rulers. And she says, oh no, she's French. She's like, oh no, no, I just do this with my hands like this. I, oh. I was like, you mean the whole thing? She's like, yes, I've just been here for a few hours. Doing this. <laughs> and it's just like the most deranged piece of art direction you'll ever see. And like wow. I say, carved into the tree with a little drill in this weird little language. Every line perfectly straight, everything, uh, it actually still like kind of chills me to think that she's able. That's, That's incredible. Did you take uh, photos of that? No close ups. Yeah, we, we got that. That's wow. beautiful. I want to awesome. see like a book. Like a I, Gretel. Well, like one of those like, yeah. yeah, making of books with all the. They may well, I don't know. They're, make, they're doing a very elaborate uh, soundtrack, which is cool. Oh, nice. Talking about the sonic world of the film, actually, and what your goal was to emphasize or highlight it's all about kind of meeting the expectation halfway, I think. And, you know, when you're making a picture for a studio and you really do owe them what they need a little bit. And I think that that can be sometimes thought of as a negative or something like you're working for the man or some, <laughs> some nonsense like this. But at the end of the day, no, you have a benefactor, right? You have a benefactor in a studio who's giving you the opportunity to make a movie. And in this case, giving you an opportunity to make a theatrical release picture, which by the way, as we all know, is impossible now so to be given that by them you want to return the favor at least somewhat you want to you want to hold fast to your strong approach which god knows we do and then you want to give a little bit and i think part of what the sound in the movie is is meant to sort of they wanted and then i wanted a feeling of 
kind of children always you know it's like when you live across when you're like in new york or something you live across the street from a school and you're kind of going about your day and then all of a sudden it's a certain time it's 10 25 and it's recess and then all of a sudden it's just children and i think we we tried to sort of have that quality of like i live adjacent to a school but in this case it's like i live adjacent to a abattoir you know to a (laughs) slaughterhouse um of kids so there's always like a very faint kind of feeling of we're near that like we're we're near a lot of really kind of bad shit that's happened to kids is gretel and hansel something that could become a franchise or have a sequel and what story would you tell in another gretel and hansel universe um i without yeah without saying too much i i feel like Certainly it could be, um, my idea for it was always to sort of create our own fairy tale world. So, you know, almost our own fairy tale universe where I don't want to say Shrek, but like, you know how Shrek is, it's all the fairy tales and they all, I love Shrek Shrek too. (laughs) And they all coexist and it's, it's, you're in that enchanted world. So the idea was to sort of suggest that there isn't just one witch, there isn't just this place, there are entities all around and there are references to other fairy tales and people say things and there's a couple of Easter eggs in the movie that sort of reference other uh, older movies and things. So right. yes, the idea is that is that Gretel could certainly go forth from this movie and uh, get into some more trouble. In terms of uh, casting uh, Sophia and Samuel, did you pull, for example, uh, for her performance, did you look at uh, her from... Her performance from it that that drew you in that that you thought she she'd be perfect for this or I felt like it was really a common experience I felt with audiences and people who when they saw it they aside from Pennywise obviously they they kind of all we all had that moment of who's that you know and every right. once in a while you have that who's that moment um, you think of uh, Kristen Stewart uh, when she in uh, Into the Wild is that what it's called. What was that movie? Where Into he, the Wild with Emile Hirsch? Hirsch? That was her, right? That was like yes. her first movie. Yeah. And she was there. Everyone was kind of like, what is that? Who yeah. is that? And I think that occurs very, very, very rarely. Mm-hmm. And I right. think that with, with Sophia, it happened. And frankly, we didn't imagine that we were like, that she was going to even like look, look in our direction, frankly, like, and the fact that she was actually um, really kind of active about doing the part was really exciting and as sort of mm, i don't want to say craven as it sounds you know if you can't somehow break through the noise of the world right now your stuff just is like it just becomes invisible and so to have someone like sophia who prove has already proven themselves to be real interesting and really sort of like attractive to people in her age group girls and boys i think want to know more about like what her adventure is going to be to have someone who kind of comes in with a with a certain pre-bought strength was it was it couldn't have been more invaluable i mean and on top of it she's absolutely fantastic and i think what i like the most about her is how small she's willing to be on camera how small she's willing to 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 sort of express you know it's not there's no scene chewing there's no a big kind of histrionics it's all very very minute and to me that's the very best kind of movie acting and she has huge expressive eyes that she and then she and she doesn't blink i kept saying that to gallo she hasn't blinked <laughs> she hasn't blinked today <laughs> that's okay george lucas can make him blink he, can make, yeah. he, he wants blink so he wants blinks right, right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. i've seen his movies too yeah. so i want to know 
and I don't know if this is too personal, but if Orion has offered you any other remakes like Child's Play or uh, no, I haven't been offered anything by Orion. There was there was a time when I when I was kind of. I made the rounds of like, hey, you want to be this guy? You want to be this guy? You want to be this guy? And the only guy that I wanted to be was I would have happily been the guy to do Friday the 13th again. Oh, wow. And I, and, you know, not to bore, well, I guess this is an inside, like a, like a, an industry insider podcast or something, but like the rights to that are kind of like a real mess. Yeah, that's not going to get resolved anytime. It's a hard one. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and there's like, there's a weird thing, like you can have the rights to the title, but you can't have the rights to the mask. Right. The mask and the title are held by different people. I think LeBron James actually is involved. I think he. I owned, heard about. Yeah, yes. he he's a co-owner of the rights of the mask. I don't know of what, right. but it's the kind of thing where it's like you can't have one without the other. So, like, what's the version of the movie without the mask, or what's the blah blah blah? So, I um, I really wanted to, you know, I would do that. I'd be thrilled to do that. Um, that's probably the one, probably the one for me. Like, wow. I, did, I didn't want to do um. Halloween, for instance, I, I felt like that had been done. I'm obviously they've had a lot of success, but uh, Jason was my guy. Wow! Did you have your own? Also, also, it's the thirteenth one. I don't need to tell you guys. Oh, that. oh yeah, that's yeah. right. <laughs> I, don't need to tell you, I don't need to tell you that, right? Yeah, that would be just called thirteen or something, right? right? And, yeah, and and the screenplay that I read that they had was written by the guy who wrote Prisoners, and it's um. It was good. It was good. It was sort of like, you know, sort of a remake of the original. And that's what I would want to do too. It's like kind of remake the original with the mom and the camp and all the stuff and put it in the period. And yeah, maybe. And you can get away without using the mask if you do it that way. No kidding. LeBron. But then you make, but then you make it in the, in the marketing. People are like, uh, we're marketing a Friday the 13th movie. We don't have the mask. Uh, yeah. What are you doing today? Why are you doing this to us? <laughs> right. I'm wondering if, if you have a favorite shot that people should watch out for in Gretel and Hansel. Yeah. Ooh, a favorite shot. Yeah. yeah. You know, there's a bit when she's sort of had, um, she kind of goes in and out of these dreams that are sort of waking dreams and they happen. They don't happen. It's real. It's not real. Uh, and there's one towards sort of the end ish when she's seen, when she's been in one of these dream states and she's seen, you know, what there is to see, right? She's gone down to the, to the basement and she's seen what's really happening here. Like what the food that they're eating is really all about. And she wakes up the next day and it's a very, very beautiful portrait of her kind of lying halfway on her bed thinking, man, this is all kind of real, isn't it? Like this is, there's no, this is, this is what it is. Now what do I do? Um, And there's just something about the color and the light and the angle and the, 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 we just, we just got it really right. It looks perfect. And the fact that we shot all these things on sets and they look like they're not on sets. I don't know. I'm, I'm mystified by that. To me, I'm, I'm always impressed by the fact that you can actually make a set look like it's not a set. Like the window actually looks like it could be daylight. So like I'm, I'm a cheap date when it comes to stuff like that. <laughs> <laughs> and filmed in 25 days is what I've heard. Too. 25 lousy days. I don't know when that became the number 24, 25 days. And I just became like, and you shall have 24 days right. to make your movie. When it's like, have you seen any of the movies that we all love? Let me tell you something. They didn't have 24 days. Yeah. It's like, when we were making the Black Hood's Daughter, we had 23 days, I think. And I kept thinking, well, it's not that, you know, at least The Exorcist had 185 days or whatever <laughs> yeah. they had. Like, you know, and you just, yeah. it's just a different way of doing things. There's a couple of things that popped up on my radar, man. And, and one of them is one of my favorite books in a very, very long time uh, titled uh, A Head Full of Ghosts. Yeah. Paul uh, Tremblay. Yeah. So you're, you're, you're working on that movie? Well, I wrote a script for it. 
and I've been attached to directed for a while. It's been a project that's, that's, you know, frankly, it's hard to get movies like that made these days. It's just, if it's a horror movie, but it's also a drama or, and maybe hereditary is a good example of that. It's like, if it's a horror movie, but it's also really kind of human or it's kind of tragic is more like a tragedy. I've always thought of head full of ghosts as like sort of a family tragedy. You pitch those words to anybody in town and they say, here's your, can we validate your parking? Like that's, <laughs> that's, I mean, that's le- legitimately how it goes. And also just like in you know, the budget range of things is weird. So that movie has had a hard time sort of finding its home. The script I really, really love and, and that I wrote for it, I really love. And I diverged a lot from the, from the source. Um, but with Tremblay's blessing, he, he calls my script and his novel Sisters, which oh, I think wow. is, is, is generous. So who knows? Maybe someday. That's got to happen. That's got to happen for sure. There's hope. And the other thing that I came across a weirdly on like a military website is this title that, you, that you're supposedly working on called Incident at Fort Bragg? Yeah, that's a picture for Lionsgate um, produced by uh, Bo Flynn. And it's, yeah, an apparently true story. Well, the people involved are certainly true. The 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 investigator and the priest um, are real people. I, I, I've I've had a lot of contact with the investigator about yeah a, a, a really really bad violent incident that takes place on uh, Fort Bragg, which is the the, the largest uh, installation uh, military installation in the world. I want to well, say special forces too. Yeah. yeah, and this sort of unassuming, uh, you know, nineteen year old uh, petite officer does a lot of really really bad stuff and uh it they they were it requires a priest and a investigator to sort of get to the bottom of what it all is it's pre- it's actually and i have a script for that that i wrote too and it's um that's a fun one that's kind of like that wants to be like a like if tony scott made a horror movie yeah oh wow you know uh not the hunger you know like if tony scott made like a demonic right thing uh it's sort of like if top gun and the exorcist Right. Had a baby. That's amazing. Yeah. Right. Now that you can sell. Yeah. You can't exactly. say it's a family right. tragedy, but you can right. say Exorcist meets Top Gun. Right. The executive's like, well, will the devil be flying? <laughs> Interesting, though, it, it, you know, that movie, we have Exorcism, Head Full of Ghosts, we have Exorcism, Black Coat's Daughter, we have an Exorcism. I mean, that seems to be like the common thread between a lot of these movies it's out there exorcisms are you know it's one of those things that like it's proven to be proven you know yeah people like to people like to see that stuff head full of ghosts i i i really wanted to make sure that i that i kind of pocketed the um exorcism aspect as much as i could and and actually i like how we how we did that we kind of keep all that stuff like off screen out of our it's not really our business because that's important and then incident at fort bragg not really yeah again not really an exorcism movie more of a it's more it's more like it feels more like seven it's more like an investigative okay, movie okay. Or, or 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 the ring maybe do you ever cross paths with uh william friedkin to discuss uh, never i wish wow. not yet yeah that guy i mean his most recent film was a documentary uh that he made right when he, where he filmed an exorcism at the vatican right uh, i think it's called the the devil and father Amor, I think yes. it's called. it's very fascinating because he reflects on the exorcist movie a little bit and then he shows you hey this is a live video that I'm shooting for you. What really yeah. goes on? Yeah. And then he tells you, hey, there's some stuff that happened that, you know, that I couldn't film. Yeah. So he's like, he's, no, believer. I, I, he's a believer. You know? Yeah. And the guy, the guy, uh, his, his, the, the investigator who, who's part of the true story of the Fort Bragg thing, I've spoken to him on the phone a couple of times and to hear him tell it, man, man, oh man. And this is a guy who's like, you know, 
He's not some, he, he's a, he was, he's like a CIA guy. Like he's like a sir, yes, sir. Wow. Guy. You know, he's not, he's not out there to be like funky yeah. about yeah, anything. Yeah. He's out there to be like, here's what I saw. Let me tell you. Wow. And it was, and it's chill. I mean, it's obviously chilling and wow. yeah, it's astonishing. It's real. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> seriously. Well, dude, thank you so much for being here. Oh, it was an absolute pleasure. And yes. uh, Gretel and Hansel in theaters everywhere, January 31st. Yeah, go see it. It's so good, man. Go see it. So go good. see it. Take yes. a friend. And by the way, PG-13, so take your kids. Yes. That's right. Yes. You're I'm taking, taking our daughter. Taking my daughter, yeah. She's so excited <laughs> to see news. it. <laughs> that was a Boo Crew Podcast, episode 98. Special thanks to our guest, Oz Perkins. Follow G&H Movie on Instagram and see Gretel and Hansel in theaters everywhere this Friday. Music for this episode provided by Powerman 5000. Till next time, it's the Boo Crew saying sweet screams. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Boo Crew Podcast. Haunt the Boo Crew at TalesFromTheBooCrew.com Tales from the Boo Crew on Facebook and Instagram. Follow us on Twitter at TalesFromTheBoo. The Boo Crew is Lauren and Trevor Shand and Leone D'Antonio. The Boo Crew is produced by Lauren Shand Chopped and sliced by Trevor Shan. The Boo Crew is a TSP creation, part of the Bloody Disgusting Podcast Network. Bye. A Bloody Disgusting Podcast Network, home of the Boo Crew. For horror-centric interviews, SCP archives, weekly full cast storytelling, horror queers, genre commentary from an LGBTQ perspective, and creepy for disturbing and terrifying creepy pastas. Listen free wherever you stream audio and at bloodydisgusting.com/slash podcasts.